0: Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. I'm Fiona Sutherland, dietitian from Melbourne, Australia and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I interview dietitians from all over the world who are experts in health at every size, the non-diet approach and mindfulness-based practice. These are a collection of interviews by a dietitian for dietitians and nutritionists, so that we can build a strong community of wonderful professionals who share an inclusive vision of well-being for everybody in everybody. Thanks so much for joining me. Hello, Mindful Dietitians, and thank you so much for coming back for another episode of the interview series. Today, I'm chatting with fellow eating disorder dietitian, Jess Setnick, who many of you will already be familiar with. Jess has a really unique style and she's super charismatic. In her presentations. Uh, she has a really genuine ability to connect with audiences and people on a very authentic and, and deep level. Um, I've seen Jess present a number of times in person and she's not only um, very entertaining but also very heartfelt, very knowledgeable uh, and is able to bring together all You know all the different ideas around eating disorder treatment um, you know and and make it really accessible to a wide variety of people. So Jess has spent her career really developing eating disorder treatment protocols in many different levels of care and she shares a lot of her knowledge with health professionals and the public in lots of different environments. She developed the Eating Disorders Boot Camp which is a training workshop for professionals and audio course always helpful for those of us who are time poor. She also developed the Eating Disorders Clinical Pocket Guide and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics Pocket Guide to Eating Disorders. So she's contributed significantly to the eating disorders treatment community. She is a CEDRD supervisor in the US and a mentor to lots of treating professionals around the world. She also is heavily involved in IFED, which is the International Federation of Eating Disorder Diet. So that's one way that you can not only connect with Jess but also connect with many other like-minded dietitians in the eating disorder treatment community from around the world. So I'd really recommend uh you jump on to IFED which is IFEDD.com, and um just see what's happening on there. It's it's not a, it's a very inexpensive to join IFED and um There's a really great listserv where you can have some really great conversations with people from all over the world. Because, as you know, uh, know, um, the way people experience eating disorders is not unique to one particular country or one particular cultural background or body or gender or anything like that. And the more that we can share our experiences with others around the world, the the richer our own experience is. So without further chit chat from me, here is my conversation with the wonderful Jess Setnick. Welcome back to the Mindful Dietitian interview series. So this morning I'm really excited because we're going to be hearing from the wonderful Jessica Setnick, who is a US-based dietitian. Um, And yeah, so welcome Jess. Thank
1: you, thanks a lot.:
0: Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so you and I have had a really great opportunity. In fact, we literally couldn't stop talking just now, and um, maybe <laughs> I think it's probably time to share a little bit of your, uh, a bit of about your experience and a bit about your wisdom with everybody else. Um, so you're a very experienced dietitian and tell us a little bit about you know how you how you got started into dietetics and then you know how your career has progressed so far.
1: Sure, sure. So my bachelor's degree was in anthropology and that was something that I was really fascinated by the the choices that humans have made over time that lead to different changes in human behavior and human adaptability And then I fell in love with nutrition when I took it as an elective. And so I decided to move forward to get my degree in sports nutrition. At that time, I was very interested in the mix between nutrition and physical activity. And then as I went through graduate school, I really fell in love with the area of dysfunctional eating behaviors because I found that that was the area where it seemed that that anthropology background really had the most information for me. So I think of anthropology as sort of the macro study of human behavior over time. And nutrition is more of a micro study of each individual's choices and behavior over time. So it gave me a fresh perspective that was not very common in the eating disorder field. And so it seemed that pretty early on I saw things in a little bit of a different way and wanted to communicate about the way I was seeing things and so uh, my first job was as a dietitian in a children's hospital after that I went into private practice and as those years ticked by both in the hospital and in private practice a lot of people would come to me for advice about eating disorders and especially children with eating disorders and so I came up with the idea to do Eating Disorders Boot Camp, which is the workshop that I started. And it became, I guess, a hit, you would say. Um, There really wasn't anything in our education in the U.S. Mm -hmm. as became dietitians about eating disorders. And so once dietitians got into the working world and realized how many people have dysfunctional eating behaviors, they really were craving continuing education so I did eating disorders boot camp about 40 times in different cities and then through that when people heard me they would invite me to come back to their state dietetic association or to a different conference and so I was doing a lot of speaking and realized that I couldn't do private practice well as together with speaking well and so I worked on uh, not taking any new patients and over the course of two years I closed my practice and I just became a, a speaker a professional speaker. And what I realized was that it's very hard to make a living as a speaker because the places that need a speaker that need education often don't have a budget for that. So Mm. it became clear that in order to work as an educator of professionals, I would need a backer or a sponsor. And so I worked for a series of three different eating disorder treatment hospitals as a spokesperson and, um, I guess that leads me up to now where um, I'm no longer a spokesperson for any facilities. I've gone back to teaching Eating Disorders Boot Camp. It's now Eating Disorders Boot Camp Next Generation, and hopefully this summer working on a book that I have in my head but would like to write.
0: Ooh, that sounds very promising. So maybe uh, sometime you could give us a tiny, tiny little hint about what your book is about. But I think, you know, once we kind of get to hear more about you, maybe it might become a little obvious.
1: Sure. Well, I think it, it is about the anthropology of eating. It's about the human choices that we make about food and also how some of them, we, we think that we're making our own choices, but really, there's a lot of habit and a lot of things that are passed down from our parents and grandparents. And so if you really wanna look at what's going on with your eating, you need to look back two generations and see what was going on with your grandparents when they were teaching your parents how to eat. Not that, that any other person causes our eating dysfunction, but that the beliefs that we have about eating are passed on. And those may be some of the beliefs that we're still operating with now, even though they're no longer useful yeah that's absolutely fascinating. It really I mean, and
0: a lot of our a lot of our patients and clients talk to us about the distress that they feel about food and eating and their behaviour. Do you think is anybody doing that kind of assessment well? Do you think that transgenerational stuff?
1: I think that dietitians are the best at it. Um, you know, as far as assessing for someone's, you know, childhood eating experiences, what was eating like in your family, I think we do it with children when we're assessing children and teenagers. But as someone, you know, as our patients are older, I'm not sure with adults that everyone is assessing those question marks. I think as things come up, we do start to ask those. And I think as dietitians, we're probably the best out of anyone. I think I, I hate to, you know, compare or to slam any other profession, I don't wanna do that. But I will say that the family therapists seem to do a very interesting job of identifying patterns in family behaviors. And that's really one of the ways that I sort of got this idea is when I was a support person for a family member going through treatment. In family therapy, the therapist asked us to basically write our own family tree and what were two or three characteristics that we remember from each of the people that came before us. So write a couple of characteristics about your dad, write a few characteristics about your mom. What about your dad's dad and your dad's mom and your mom's mom and your mom's dad? Write a few things that you either remember or that you heard about these people And then you looked at which were the characteristics that had passed on to you. So in a sense, you know, we all walked into family therapy thinking I'm my own person. I choose my own path. I have my own personality. And then you look at this family tree and you realize, well, actually, I have these grouchy moods like my dad and I have this perfectionistic behavior like my grandma, you know, and you realize, oh my gosh, all these parts of me that I thought were my own creation really have been not necessarily inherited in the sense of passed on through genes, although some of them may have been, but inherited in the sense that more than DNA is passed on in families, even if we didn't know those family members well.
0: Mm. Yeah, and what, how do you think that, that understanding that kind of inter, intergenerational dynamic can really assist people in, their, in, their, in healing their relationships with food?
1: Well, I think it frees you. It frees you from believing this is a fact into thinking, oh, this is a behavior. So for example, I would say there probably are very few people right now in the United States who are not one or two generations removed from someone who either went through World War II, World War I, the Vietnam War, um, a refugee situation, the Holocaust, some kind of food insecurity, extreme poverty. Hurricane Katrina, you know, different situations that we've had where there was some kind of either shortage of food or or inability to access food. And so we have a lot of people who have either, you know, food hoarding behavior or binge eating behavior or I can't leave anything on the plate type of behavior. And Whereas someone might think, well, this is just the way it is. You have to eat food before it spoils or something like that. To be able to understand this is a behavior that has been ingrained in me through my family's experiences, you then have a choice of whether you want to continue to perpetuate it or not. Mm -hmm. And there may be guilt and shame and even a sense of betrayal of doing things differently than your parents did or your grandparents did, but you can understand it instead of gut reacting to it. When you see your child, let's say, leave food over, we can say, oh, that stings because I remember being punished if I ever left food over, but I don't want to pass that on to my child. So you're more aware of the behaviors and the feelings rather than just repeating them without realizing where they came from.
0: Yeah, as you're talking, it's reminding me. Actually, over the years, I've had a, I'm I'm personally a child of uh, a Vietnam vet, and it's my mum actually, not my dad. Um, and uh, similar to the US, a lot of people in my generation, and uh, you know, any anybody. I guess my age and and upwards definitely um and as you say things like hurricane katrina you know um we've had some major disasters here too in recent times which would have caused you know a lot of a a lot of um body trauma um which of Mm -hmm. course can you know which which of course can come out in in eating behaviors um and uh, it's it's really these clients have helped me, helped me understand that, Mm -hmm. you know, things don't exist in isolation. They exist in a dynamic. And I really love the way you talked about family therapy because they look at systems, don't they? They don't just look at the one person. They look at the, the interrelationship between the two. So I find that, you know, I I find it really fascinating. And it, what I, what I find it does is it, is it really cuts through the shame that people feel.
1: Yeah. And that's the whole goal I think is, is looking at your behaviors and saying these are behaviors that I do because I am a person not because I'm a bad person or a good person but I'm a person I'm trying to do my best and sometimes some of these historical influences interfere and therefore if I'm aware of what's interfering I can I can make a choice of which way to go and even if I choose the historical path even if I choose to eat everything on my plate. I can at least be aware that I'm doing that for a reason, mm-hmm. instead of just thinking, "Ugh, I'm such a bad person, I can never stop eating until I've eaten all my food, mm-hmm. or I'm such a good person because I eat everything on my plate. We can We can separate it from those moral judgments and from shame and say, is eating everything on your plate supportive to whatever your goals may be? And if it's not, how can you either change it so there's less food on your plate or more food on your plate or different food on your plate? Or maybe you don't eat on a plate. Maybe you eat on a, I don't know, um, I'm trying to think of something like at a picnic. Maybe you don't have a plate. You just eat with your hands, you know, if it's a barbecue. Um, You know, there's so many different options instead of just saying one way is right and one way is wrong. And anytime I... I, anytime someone describes to me there's a right way and a wrong way, I feel like inherent in that is shame yes. because when you can see many, many different possibilities, the shame just really diminishes and you can say, oh, there's so many possibilities here. I could I could eat all of my hamburger. I could eat none of my hamburger. I could eat two bites of hamburger and some salad. I could eat all salad, no hamburger. I could eat French fries and a milkshake. There's so many millions of options that I think sometimes that becomes overwhelming. And that's why we do accidentally sort of limit our possibilities to what's right and what's wrong, because it is hard to process all of the possibilities in the world. But the truth is we are faced with a lot of possibilities and it's better. I think as dietitians that we help people navigate all those possibilities than feed into their idea that there is one right way and one wrong way. And that's pretty much what all diets do is say that in any given situation, there's an appropriate way, which is what the diet says to do, and there's an inappropriate way, which is whatever that's not. And I think that's why people get in such a double bind and start feeling so much shame about not being able to stick to a diet. It's not because of the diet. It's because that's no way to live. There is really no one good way and one good bad way when it comes to eating. And so any diet becomes unsustainable.
0: Yeah, so so the the kind of the, the black and white or dichotomous thinking and, mm-hmm. and the shame, it kind of puts the blinkers on, doesn't it? And you know, uh, you feel like it tunnel visioned when it comes to, to choice.
1: And yes, kind of, and people it, say, well, it shouldn't be black or white, it should be gray. But I think of it from like looking above from 100 feet up. It's really houndstooth. It's like there's lots of choices, lots of black choices, lots of white choices, and maybe it looks gray from afar. but Sometimes we make, you know, this choice and sometimes we make this other choice and life is made up of a blend. If we're trying to just be completely one way, it's never going to work because life is so dichotomous. Life has all the colors of the rainbow. And so trying to just live in one of them, is going to exclude a lot of things from life. And I think that applies to eating too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. You know, looking from above and seeing it more as a as a hound's tooth, and the the more distance you can get from it, then you know it, it doesn't become so stark. You begin, right. You
1: don't get hung up on any one choice mm-hmm. to make or break you. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's interesting because um, you know diet culture and diet messaging is so strong that it really almost re it re triggers lots of that transgenerational mm-hmm, um, so stuff really. that lives lives in us, doesn't it?
1: I think so. I think that there's that whole idea of using someone else's guidance of what you should or shouldn't eat. I think diets do the exact same thing. And so when we teach our child, you need to eat what I say you need to eat, I think we make them vulnerable to whatever the next person says they should eat, because we're taking them away from their internal cues. Mm. And I'm not saying that, that, you know, as adults, we shouldn't have any, any, input into what children eat. If a child tries to eat a penny or a magnet or a moldy mushroom from the yard, <laughs> yeah. put your foot down and say, no, that's not food. But I think we can get too ingrained or enmeshed. I don't know what the right word involved, I guess in the micro, you know, did you have five cherries or six cherries or 10 cherries when really we should be celebrating that a child is branching out and eating a different kind of food rather than being so concerned with what exactly is the content of the food or, you know, and I think dietitians know that, but we sound so different when we say that, that it's Mm. the content of, you know, a week or two worth of eating for a child, not any one meal or any one food. I think that's such a, I don't want to say a new message, but it's such a different message for so much of the world that it almost sounds unbelievable uh, it really, I think we, we dietitians are pretty savvy. We're we're right on because we, we know what food can and can't do. That's our superpower, right? Food can't make you happy. It can't solve all your problems. When a parent says to me, if my child would just eat broccoli, I would be so happy. And I think, well, no, mm-hmm. you won't. You'll still have to pay the mortgage, and <laughs> it's, right? You're, it's going to be hot this summer, and you're going to have to water your plants twice a day. And you'll still stub your toe, right? It's so easy to get hung up on, you know, if my child would just eat this certain way, everything would be great. And it's really not true, but we, we put so much value on food that it, it, it sounds like it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, that's
0: true. Yeah, that's, Yes, that's so true. And I think with a lot of parents, um, you know, the, the, the confounding thing also is, uh, you know, so much pressure on, on parents to feed children a certain way oh. and, then, and then feeling criticized by, uh, you know, friends, extended family. And so <laughs> it just mm-hmm. makes a hard job even harder.
1: I think so. I, no one is born being preoccupied with food. Mm-hmm. I think our society makes people that way. Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And, and certainly becoming a parent, um, it, it kind of stirs the pot in lots of ways. So even if a lot of your shit has kind of been dealt with, it stirs that pot good and proper when you have your own kids, because there's often I have clients who there's one side of them that's like, I just want them to be relaxed and flexible around food because I know what I've been through. But then on the other side of things, they're actually getting, um, they're actually kind of getting re-triggered themselves. Um, and a lot of their own soft points, so to speak, are being, uh, you know, brought up to the surface again in aiming to feed their, you know, it's like I want yeah. my ki- I want my kid to be perfectly flexible.
1: So, right. <laughs> right. And if you think about Maslow's hierarchy, you know, as a parent, mm. basically, you know, your job essentially is is at that bottom level, yes. right? So feed, clothe, and shelter your child. And so, you know, feeding your child is is thirty three percent of your responsibility. It's a huge responsibility. And if something goes wrong at all, at any point in the process. It can be very, very scary if you have a child who, for example, you know has trouble sucking and swallowing and breathing at the same time or right. a child who you know, you're told your child is gaining too much weight or not enough weight. It can be really self-perpetuating that you to be a good parent, you have to be over-preoccupied with your child's eating when really it's the opposite. You want to only be as involved as you need to be to get things back on track. But our own anxiety can take over and be so profound. And we worry that if I'm not overly worried, then I'm not a good parent Mm. because I'm not worrying, especially if others in our community are worrying and it it can just become a very self perpetuating cycle of negativity. In other words, I want to be flexible with my child's eating, but then I feel judged by external Mm. factors and yeah, it can be a big old mess. And, And that's why I feel like, wow, wouldn't it be great if every new parent, was given the opportunity to meet with a dietitian on a regular basis, rather than waiting for something to go terribly wrong before dietitians get involved. Yeah, definitely. And especially
0: I think when, when kids are younger too, and they, like in the, uh, I think in the States you have your, um, uh, uh, like heights and weights and all your medical stuff done by pediatricians. Mm -hmm. And in Australia we have what's called maternal child health nurses. So from birth to about three or four, um, your child will be monitored um, and you'll have like short sessions with your maternal child health nurse so a lot of the anxieties um in parents come about from uh weights and height measuring over time Mm -hmm. and (laughs) and the message that your child is too small your child is too big um and then the pressure that comes about uh, and what that brings up in parents themselves, mm. especially What
1: when, I, what I right. feel like nobody ever remembers is that all of those growth charts and all of those norms were made from normal children. That's so right. Therefore, if you have a child who is less than the third percentile, three percent of children are less than the third percentile, and that is totally normal for them. That's right. And the whole idea of measurement error, which is just, you know, completely throws a wrench into the whole system. Like people don't shrink, but yet you see that all the time on growth charts. Mm-hmm. And then there's the factor of just people not understanding what they're looking at. So I'm thinking of my office manager who worked for me for 10 years in a dietitian's office. So this is a well-educated person. And she went to the doctor with her first child and came back and said, the doctor said that my child is in the 85th percentile on the growth chart. Does that mean I need to feed her 15% more food? Oh,
0: all mm-hmm. right.
1: Yes, I see. Just simply not even understanding what the numbers mean. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, oh my goodness. Creating a problem that isn't even there by using those numbers in a way that isn't understood by the individual that they're supposed to be helping. So yeah, that's a big old mess. I agree, and I think that a lot of what we're doing is taking us, not we dietitians or the people listening here, but our society is doing... It's taking us in a wrong direction. And um, uh-huh. sadly, I think it's job security for those of us dietitians who work with people with dysfunctional eating behaviors, because uh-huh. it's definitely not going away on a public health level. We have to really tackle the problems one at a time individually, because everyone's situation is so different.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. It, it was a c- c- occurring to me, Jess, when you were talking before that, um, one of the skills that people can really build up in understanding, um, that they don't exist in isolation, that they exist within a, within a, a dynamic and within genetic combinations, um, of both sides of the family, that especially uh, those who have close contact with existing family members, that understanding, uh, that uh, you know, for example, that their grandmother who may have made some unhelpful comments around food or -hmm. or their body that understanding grandma's experience can also inject some compassion into that, into that as well. And, you know, even if they have it, if they have an existing relationship can really moderate the intensity, I guess, of a, of a reactive kind of, Oh, I think
1: that's definitely true. And you know, our goal, I think in life is to be true to ourselves while at the same time not being mean or cruel to other people. So where yeah. is the best there? How can I be true to myself and my own eating? The easiest example is someone who kind of pushes food as love. And you know, someone who says, well, here's some apple pie. I made it for you because I know it's your favorite. And you say, oh, you know what? I'm full. Dinner was delicious. No, thank you. And they say, but I made it for you. It was your favorite. Are you saying you don't want my pie? (laughs) How do we stay true to our own boundaries while still maintaining compassion that this is, you know, a, a person who, you know, clearly wants to do something kind for me. It may be misguided, but how can I say, thank you so much for making that apple pie. I love that you did that for me. I'd love to take some home and eat it later because I'm really full right now. It looks absolutely delicious. How can we nurture the part of that person that's that's not saying, I need you to eat apple pie, but that's saying, I need you to validate me, even though the words are saying, I need you to eat apple pie. Mm. And it, it's a very hard balance. And I remember when I first became a stepmother, my stepkids did not eat a wide variety of foods. And I remember making soup one time for my stepson Derek that – I had seen him eat a million times, but he didn't want it. And he said, well, it doesn't look right. And I said, well, I think you could at least try it before you say you're not going to eat it. And he said, well, it looks too watery. And I said, well, I can change that. I can take out some of the water. And he said, well, I think it's too brown. And I said, well, that doesn't even make any sense. And he said, I think it's too cold. And I said, well, I can reheat it in the microwave. And, you know, we kept going around and around until finally I, and he was about six, so this probably didn't make any sense to him at all, but I said it more for myself. I said, you know what I just realized? I just realized that I want you to like me, and so I really want you to like my soup. But Aww, I know I that, that you do like me, and you don't have to eat my soup to prove it, so I'm going to take the soup away, and you can have something else for lunch if, if that's what you want. And it was really a conversation I was almost having with myself, you know, to identify this is not about this soup. I mean, yes, it's frustrating. You made soup and the child doesn't want it. But at the end of the day, it's up to him what goes inside his body. And that's an important skill that we nurture in children, right, is that they have good boundaries. And so, you know, him showing his good boundaries didn't actually mean I was a bad stepmom or I was incapable of feeding a child when his – father wasn't around you know that kind of thing but that's it took it took a few rounds of confusion or arguing whatever you want to call it for me to realize this is not actually about soup this is about my relationship with this child and and to preserve my relationship with this child I'm gonna have to let go of the idea of him eating the soup but I mean I'm a dietitian and I had been a dietitian for at least 10 years at that point so it's not a simple concept it wasn't immediately obvious to me because you know, it it takes a lot of insight to hold a mirror up to yourself and see what you're doing. And it's a lot easier to sort of put it on the other person as they're being difficult when really that's not the case at all. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's so true. But it is easy to to find ourselves in those dynamics, especially as nutrition professionals, when it's almost like you can't see the the trees for the woods or whatever that, whatever that phrase is, you know, you're just too close to, to it. Plus, plus it's also uncomfortable. It makes us, you know, have to face up to some things that can be uncomfortable. And as humans, we don't, we prefer just not to take a look at that. Thanks very much.
1: Right. Absolutely. And I will say that I did have the experience of, you know, for many years giving this sort of Ellen Satter type of division of responsibility advice and, hoping that it would come true, you know, come to pass. In my own experience, you know, with my stepkids, as I said, they didn't eat a wide variety of foods. And I learned that when we would go to Thanksgiving or to a special occasion at someone else's house, I would actually bring one of the things. I'd bring a box of cheesy felvita shells because that was one of the things that they would eat. And if other people gave me critical looks, I didn't care because if those children were going to be you know, selective eaters for the rest of their life, they were also not going to feel ashamed of it. They were going right. to order in a restaurant um, something that they would like to eat. They were going to learn manners and how to put their napkin in their lap and how to say no thank you politely to food that they didn't want to eat. Um, and I secretly harbored the wish that at some point they would branch out and eat more food, but it clearly wasn't going to be on my timetable. And I've told this story a million times, and my stepson Derek has probably never – heard me say it in public and would probably be mortified if he did, but there was a point where at about 12 years old, um, I always made, like I said, something that I knew the children would eat. I always made sure there was one or two or three things that they liked on the table, but my husband and I weren't limited to that. We would eat whatever we were going to eat but we never forced the kids to eat any of it. And one day Derek said, could I have some of that chicken? And, and it was actually chicken that he had helped prepare. I kept them involved in the kitchen too, but they knew they didn't have to eat anything that they didn't want. And so he said, could I have some of that chicken? And I cut him half a piece and he ate it. And then he asked for the rest of it, um, the rest of the chicken. And I couldn't believe it, but I let him have the rest of the piece. And then, Um, you know, over the course of, let's say that weekend, he asked for a number of different other foods and it was very surprising. And after a couple of weeks, I just, you know, asked him not at a meal time, you know, I didn't want to put him under any pressure, but I just said, you know, it's totally fine, but I'm just so curious what's changed about your eating. And he said, Jessica, and remember he was 12 at this time. (laughs) He said, Jessica, I'm going to be dating soon, and I'm not going to order off the kids' menu. Mm. Well, there you go, Ellen Satter. High five to you, because yep. it happens in their own time if we give them every opportunity. But when we push a child, I feel like sometimes we can push them even in a more restrictive direction accidentally. Mm-hmm. And I feel like as adults, we're not that different from the people that we were as children. You mm-hmm. know, So we expect ourselves to... You know, I mean, I think to expect ourselves to have nice manners at the table, to be respectful of people, you know, who are asking us to eat food we don't want, but at the same time, we should honor our boundaries. And and in some senses, I would say maybe an eating disorder even takes the embodiment of a person who wants us to eat in a certain way and recovery requires saying, I'm not going to do it your way. Yes,
0: Yes, that's so true i I love that story, and you're right. He probably would be mortified but um <laughs> but uh, yeah, thanks, Ellen Satter, giving teens romantic uh
1: experiences <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> opening that door <laughs> that's the thing that's what was motivating to him is right. what what you know we as parents wanted, and I will tell you the happy ending or happy middle is that you know both of those children eat you know, pretty much a variety that I would say rivals anyone. We can go to any restaurant now. And I'm talking about kids who literally it it changed where we could go on vacation based on what we knew what food would be available. I mean, they were very selective and and that's changed completely. I'm not saying that every child will change from a selective eater into an omnivore, but I can say that, you know, certainly forcing them to eat, I don't think would have made a difference in our case.
0: No. And as you say, it would have just brought that shame up to the, up to the surface where it could be triggered by lots of different things, including, you know, social occasions amongst their peers, you know, for teens, the worst thing is to feel embarrassed in front of friends, Um, you know, so to be able to set them up in a way that helps them explore at their own, at their own pace and, and set their own boundaries, it, you know, just creates this wonderful um, autonomous sense of self really around food.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think that there are so many messages, though, that say if you don't get these foods in kids when they're young, they're never going to eat them. And I just I don't believe that that's true. But I think it's a very pervasive message yes yes and even
0: worse i think the um not only the pressure around vegetables for example as a classic kind of pressure but also pressure around not to what not to feed your kids so you know oh my gosh it i just I've got, I've got quite a few clients at the moment who are struggling with an eating disorder themselves and trying to feed their kids and so the double whammy is that they are trying to increase their own um, experiences around food and at the same time they're getting hit with you know from all directions around how they should be feeding their kids especially these days what they shouldn't be so it's, it's really confusing and conflicting and personally I, I think it really gets in the way of their own recovery.
1: Oh, that's interesting to think about how, oh, that's a lot to be trying to work on your own recovery and also be helping your kids develop a healthy relationship with food or a mm-hmm. neutral, non-shame-based relationship with food. But I think that it's it's a great gift to give your children, you know, absolutely. That's yeah, a hundred percent. So from a, from a dietitian's
0: point of view, Jessica, what do you think are some of the most important questions or what are some of the questions that you think we can ask as part of an assessment that, um, uh, where we can explore a little bit about people's experiences, um, within, yeah. within the family and intergenerational kind of, uh, insights.
1: Okay, so as an anthropologist, my belief is that smart people don't do dumb things, right? So people do things for a reason. And so anytime you are identifying some kind of dysfunctional eating behavior, there is a reason. That person had a reason whether it was five years ago or 50 years ago there was a good reason for that person to do that behavior now they may still be doing the behavior even though the reason is long gone and so any time that you hear about a dysfunctional eating behavior you want to assess can you remember when that started that would be the number one thing can you remember the first time that you did that can you tell me anything about the the External factors or the environment or what you were going through in your life when that began. And that's going to always be, hopefully, and I say always, but you know, never say never and never say always, <laughs> but hopefully that will open a door to getting more information. Now, if someone's had amnesia or they, they really can't remember, and sometimes when someone's had a traumatic experience, they can't remember the details. Um, But as much information as you can get, and if someone was young and doesn't know the details, possibly to ask them if they'd be willing to speak with a family member about it, Mm. find out what was happening. Now, that's not always possible. But sometimes just saying to someone, basically, I suspect there was a legitimate reason that you started that behavior, even if you can't remember it now, that statement in itself can be de-shaming because it tells someone there is a reason that you do this behavior as opposed to whatever you may believe about yourself, like you're a bad person or you're a failure as a person or whatever the case may be. I think that that's important to share that philosophy with someone, even if you can't identify what was really the genesis of the behavior.
0: Mm. Mm. Because, um, the, especially a shame based behavior, um, it's self-perpetuating isn't it you know so so at at first it was helpful until it becomes unhelpful and then it becomes like this self-perpetuating shame-based um cycle
1: right exactly so that explains why someone would for example let's say after an eating episode might choose um a purging behavior or we could say maybe not even choose it but just automatically autopilot to a purging behavior and then feeling ashamed of their purging behavior, go do a different shame-based behavior, which would be eating, which to maybe an outsider would say, okay, you just purged the food that you ate, so why would you go eat more food after getting rid of your other food that doesn't make any sense? But it's not a logical reaction based on the environment externally, it's a logical reaction based on the internal environment of shame, seeking a behavior that will help with the shame and food's a mood altering chemical. There's no doubt about that. So for someone who feels relief when they eat and feels relief when they purge and then feels guilty after they eat and then feels guilty after they purge, they can get in a cycle like that, where it's just relief, shame, relief, shame, relief, shame, even though to an outside observer, the whole cycle may not make a lot of logical sense.
0: Yeah. I, I really love that because it it gives us uh, as as practitioners, it actually gives us some tools to um to give some meaning to some to something that feels very dark and um destructive to people. You know, if we can if we can find some meaning in it, again we're lifting that veil of shame, aren't we? I
1: think so. I think even something as simple as, you know, why do I always chew on straws or bite my nails, if you can tell someone who does that behavior you can say, well, that the action of chewing on something hard actually um, releases serotonin. It actually, there's, you know, a, a chemical reaction that, you know, when you chew ice or, you know, when you chew a pen cap, it, it's, there's a reason why you do it. I understand that you don't want to do it anymore. And I'd like to help you try to solve it or find a replacement behavior. But but to know that there's a logical reason that you originally initiated the behavior, I think can be very a relief for someone because believing that you're a bad person or a failure that doesn't give you any outlet for how things could be better or different tomorrow. And I'll share with you one of my my favorite tools that I learned from the addiction community, which is to use the word regret instead of shame. Mm-hmm. And I feel like If I, let's say I said something and I was very embarrassed that I said something to you and I was so embarrassed that I just never wanted to speak to you again because I never wanted you to see my face again. We really can never resolve that, right? Mm -hmm. But if I were able to say to you, instead of thinking I'm a terrible person and you'll never want to speak to me again, if I said, Iona, I really regret that I said that, could we maybe edit it out of the tape or I regret that I said that because I'm concerned that I hurt your feelings and I'd like to do it differently next time. Um, you know, regret is something that doesn't say I'm condoning the behavior. It says, I regret that I did it, but it doesn't also add on to it that I'm a terrible person. So in other words, when someone has a lapse and let's say someone has, you know, avoided binge behavior for a week or two, and then they have a lapse and they, you know, feel that they have had a binge and, In shame, shame takes you to a place of there I go again. I'm such a failure. I'm never going to change. Regret says, well, I accept that I did it. That doesn't mean I'm proud that I did it. I don't want to do it again. I regret that I did it, but it doesn't make me a bad person. So now that opens the door to what were the stages that led up to that? How could I handle it differently were it to happen next time? What would I like to put in place that would possibly prevent me from getting to that that situation in the first place. Regret opens the door to planning ahead and to compassion, whereas shame and guilt, I think really shut that door.
0: Oh, you, you said that perfectly. Honestly, that was just mm. such an amazing summary because like when you were talking, I was like, regret opens the door to compassion. And then <laughs> that was exactly what you just said.
1: <laughs> well, it, I, I don't regret you telling me I'm a genius. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. You are a genius. No, that was perfect um, because I think even when we can find that different language, some of that automatic language around I'm such an idiot, I'm a loser, you know, all that awful mm-hmm. um, self-deprecating self, um, language that people use when they um, find themselves enacting behaviours that w- they would prefer not to do or that they – And would I'll
1: tell you, have. I'm guilty as charged. I'm as guilty as as possible of being a human. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so just because I have those words doesn't mean I don't have to use them. I feel like that's a skill that I use often, um, whether it's with patients, whether it's with supervisees, whether it's with my family members, just to be able to say, I regret what I said. I regret what I did. Even when I say it to myself, I regret that I didn't allow enough time to get somewhere. Um, I regret that I didn't let myself rest longer. I mean, it's, it's such a healing word to me. And I feel like that's, you know, we're talking about all of this because you were asking kind of what can a dietitian do to help someone understand their behaviors. And I feel like these are all ways that we can help someone be able to look at a behavior rather than just sort of shutting the door and saying, well, I just want to not do it again. Sometimes that's, that's in order right. to not do it again, we have to look at what got us there in the first place.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right, Jess. I think it's um, uh, when we're—it's not—it's not not until we're able to open open that door, like we—you know—we've said a number of times before, with with a curious mind and a compassionate mind, that we're able to come with a sense of oh, so what's going on here rather than i don't want to look at it it's horrible i'm a terrible person you know then it it blocks it blocks us from understanding ourselves yeah. doesn't it you know and blocks us from growing and learning and uh, and yeah. then progressing you know and
1: healing yeah and i think that's where the understanding of what was going on in our caregivers' lives when they were trying to care for us Um, can give us some compassion both for them and also by extension compassion for ourselves because sometimes we are just going on survival instincts and it's not, it's, it's not wrong. Mm -hmm. The things that our parents told us, it's that they were skills that had developed under different circumstances. So perhaps if my dad grew up during the great depression and he learned if I don't eat what is on my plate right now, I may not get food later, there may not be anything later. So in 1975, when I was growing up, and he was saying, you have to eat everything on your plate. That was a skill he had learned that was intensely helpful in the time he learned it. But we were living, you know, gratefully in a culture of abundance at that point. Mm -hmm. And so it, it wasn't as essential for me to eat everything on my plate. But to, to learn that behavior could then become a negative thing to be able to say instead of, wow, my dad really screwed me up. But instead to say, my dad passed on important lessons to me that actually were no longer needed, mm-hmm. that gives him compassion. It gives me compassion and I can, we can preserve our relationship as well as our own sort of internally driven eating habit.
0: Yeah, that's exactly right. So we can, um, uh, like you say, we can, we can understand the experience of another without blaming or shaming them yeah. or us. And so, um, it, it sounds like what, what might be really helpful is asking our clients a little bit about what they understand their, their parents' experiences, um, if their parents are, um, are, are around. You know what? What were their parents' experiences? With, yeah, or what do you remember up?
1: about what do you remember about your parents eating, or what do you observe about your parents eating now? Mm-hmm. What do you tend to judge if you're eating a meal with your parents now? What do you notice? And even if you you know, do you remember eating meals with your family as a child, or perhaps the family didn't eat meals together? And what mm-hmm. did you what, what did you take away from that? And sometimes I think people don't have insight into their own behavior because it's very hard to look within but if we're willing to share our understanding you know all that stuff we learn in school that seems so obvious but it all has names like mirroring so I understand if I understand correctly I hear you saying that the adults would eat two hours after the children so there wasn't a lot of interaction between adults and children at mealtime is that what you're saying? And then to ask follow-up questions, you know, so tell me, what did you imagine that the adults were doing at their mealtime? Did you imagine that they were eating caviar and and ice cream for dinner and you had to eat gruel? You know, tell me more about that. Here's what comes to my mind when I hear you saying that you had to eat alone or you had to stay overnight to eat the mashed potatoes if you didn't eat them. But what was your experience? I'd like to know more about that. And then how do you think those experiences might be related to your eating behaviors now? Because I can draw a parallel where I'm thinking if I thought everyone else was getting delicious food and I had to eat yuck food that now as an adult with a credit card and a car and access to any grocery store in the world, yeah, I totally would go buy a whole Mm. bunch of stuff that I really thought was delicious and no one could tell me I couldn't eat it. But I'm wondering if, if you have that same experience or how do you think it's affected you in the now? So... I think we can sort of brainstorm with our clients and not assume, well, if you were forced to clean your plate as a child, therefore you become a binge eater. I don't think there's any path that is that direct. You know, I think that some people might be forced to clean their plate as a child and might say, I will um, never do that again. And someone else might say, I feel like I have to clean my plate at every meal. Each of us has a, a unique internal environment that reacts to the same situation differently. I mean, even siblings in the same family, yes. right? Could yep. React yep. to the same situation differently, and so we really have to open our minds to what our patient's experience is, as opposed to how I would feel if I were in that situation. But I think that it's okay to share. Well, I'm thinking if I were in that situation, this is how I might feel. I'm wondering how you feel just to sort of make it okay that, you know, we're just exploring our feelings about eating here. And, and this is a safe place to say things that might actually sound somewhat ridiculous in a different context. But here with your dietitian, you get to say those things.
0: Yeah, and I think when people are able to tell their own story and able to, uh, able to recount memories or their experience of a particular time in their life, they're actually talking not only to you, they're also telling it to themselves as well. And I think that can be really powerful, particularly if they haven't drawn Mm. those parallels for themselves or, you know, those moments, Jess, where you, where you can just see the
1: penny drop. Oh my gosh. You're reminding me of this child that came to see me or was brought to see me um, in my private practice a number of years ago. And she, she brought her bird into this session. I guess it was a, maybe a class bird, and someone got to take it home every weekend, and it was her weekend. I'm thinking, I I don't remember the exact scenario, but I remember she had a small bird cage in her lap with a bird in it, and she was sort of lightly petting the bird through the cage, and I remember her saying, it's all right. You're going to be all right. You're safe, and I thought, wow, she is, I mean, she's saying it to the bird, but clearly she is you know, really comforting herself in this scenario. And I was proud of her for being able to soothe herself that way. But it also gave me insight into how coming to see a dietitian when you're a young child and you don't really necessarily know what that means can be a situation where you might need reassurance that you're safe.
0: Oh, most definitely, especially when, especially if you're brought to a dietitian thinking they're going to tell me what to eat, they're going to tell me off, they're going to, um, you know, they're going to take take yummy foods away from me. Of course, that would be anxiety provoking for a kid.
1: Sure, that would be anxiety provoking for me. Yes, (laughs) me too. Don't take my food away. I know. Well, I feel like oh you knew that? You just reminded me. <laughs> I cannot stand it when my husband takes food off my plate and I've told him this so he doesn't do it anymore without asking because when I was a kid, whatever I was eating, if there was a part I liked the best, I would save it for yes, less. Yes. And my mom would come by. I have this very strong memory. And my mom, I uh, to this day, I mean, I've told her this very story and she's tempted to change her behavior but she would come by and she would say oh you're not going to eat that and she would just whip it right off my plate and eat it and I'd be like what Ah, and so different people could react differently to that you know maybe say I'm never going to eat a meal in front of my mom again or but it doesn't matter because she's sort of walking by. She's sort of detached from what's actually happening in this situation. But I've asked her, please don't take anything off my plate without asking. And I've just explained to her, Sometimes I save the part I want best for last. So if it's on my plate that does not equal, I'm not going to eat it, mm-hmm. you know? And so, but it's very interesting. If I see someone's hand like coming toward my plate, I panic. And maybe it's trying to like dust a bug away from my plate or something, but I can feel my anxiety just rise up in my body when I just- <laughs> I see someone's hand coming toward my plate. Like, don't take my food away. <laughs> Sorry and, to laugh. Sorry. Right? It's okay. <laughs> no, but, but that de-shames it, right? It's just right. It's a human experience mm-hmm. and that's what we're trying to do. I think is, is help our clients feel human and real and like, they can talk about things because we can give advice all day long, but if it's not the right advice for that person, it doesn't make a speck of difference. So we have to hear someone's story and I fully agree with what you said about someone feeling like they can share their story. I I think of going to the dermatologist with a rash, like the idea that, you know, if you're in the waiting room and someone comes out and says, you don't need to see the doctor, you have a rash, here's the cortisone cream. And you're walking away thinking, but nobody looked at my rash. Nobody asked me if it's growing or shrinking. Is it itchy? Have is, is, you know, is it? Is it oozing? Like no one asked me any questions. How do I know it's the right cream? And you know what? The truth is they might look at your, the doctor or nurse might look at your rash, might ask you all those questions and they might still come up with the same recommendation. You need cortisone cream, but you're just that much more likely to listen and follow that recommendation if you feel like your story was heard. So I feel like it's the same thing as dieticians. We might know exactly what someone needs to do. You need to eat more. You need to stop X, Y, Z. But if we haven't heard someone's story, then how can they put credence to our recommendation? Because this might be the same recommendation we just give to every person that walks in this room. And so having heard that story, I think there's so much more value in what we have to share. I totally agree with you about the power of someone feeling heard.
0: Yeah. And and what it also helps us to do is to um, elevate the person's own skills in being able to um, find their own solutions too. So it might not be. It might be that in any one consultation, we might come up with no ideas at all, which is great. Do you know what? I'll tell you a little secret. You and everybody else. That's actually my. Dr- that's actually my dream consultation. When I do not have to come up with anything at all, but that um, I can guide the person. You create a
1: space. Right. You know what? I think that dietitians that's probably one of the top three questions that people ask me or, or issues that people come to me as a supervisor with is I didn't give any information in this session. Did I do a bad job? Should I still charge the person? And it's really hard because we're not taught this in school to realize that what you did is you created a safe space for someone mm-hmm. to talk themselves through an issue. And where else does someone get to go for 45 minutes or an hour and talk about their secret shameful eating and not be judged if you were there and people will say oh but they could have just talk to an empty chair I mean I didn't say anything and I think okay look at an empty chair do you realistically think this person would have talked to an empty chair no you created a safe space where do they get to go and talk through this kind of thing except with you and there's so much value in that because our society is so shaming about eating behaviors it's just so shaming about so many things. I think that's how people have been controlled for so long, of course, is, you know, through what's socialization, but essentially socialization through shame. And I like to think that we are changing the world one individual at a time, because if eating and food is a metaphor for other aspects of life, helping someone heal their relationship with food can really help them in lots of other areas too. And isn't that wonderful to to be a healer, under the disguise of being a dietitian.
0: Ooh, I love that. <laughs> Healers in disguise. We can put our, our capes on. That could be maybe. Our, the heroes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I think that, uh, there's lots of ways that we can help people in, in ways that we don't even intend or realize, you know, just being present with people can um, re-establish opportunities for trust for example and trust is obviously you know very pivotal when it comes to um, you know interpersonal dynamics but also intrapersonal being able to trust ourselves around food and being able to trust ourselves around um, you know how for example we move our body or how we communicate or um, just how we are in the world I think there's lots of lots of uh, gifts that we can offer or lots of you know aspects of, of ourselves and our practice that we can offer that we don't even realize and I, I mean I I guess I have the thought that if we can shush a little bit more and not be too keen on the advice giving uh, that actually people are very skilled they're very very skilled
1: well, and I think I think it's a balance because I think there are some people who really need more direction and more advice, and others who don't. Um, and that's really the art of that's being true. a dietitian is figuring out: okay, I have this wealth of information, I have all these skills in my toolbox, where and when to appropriately apply them.
0: Yes, that's very yeah, that's very true. And understanding the person in front of you too, because it's really tempting when somebody is distressed to want to fix that for them and fix it for them as soon as possible because that's what they want as well. So it can be, it can be fairly, I mean, in my experience, it can be very easy to be drawn into this dynamic, which can actually ultimately be quite unhelpful for both of you.
1: Hmm. Yeah. That does sometimes feel like a hard sell when someone says, I want you to do X, Y, Z for me. And then we say, I'm not sure that would actually be helpful for you there may be people who then don't want to come meet with us because Mm -hmm. they feel like we don't provide what they're looking for. And we have to be okay with that. Yes.
0: Yeah, that's really true. And I guess that's part of authentic practice, isn't it? Is, you know, um, is, being loyal and authentic to our values and to the way in which we want to work and being truthful and honest with with our mm-hmm. clients rather than leading them to believe that we have something magic or something secret that we're just not telling anybody. <laughs> but if you pay me, I will tell
1: you. <laughs> yeah. And I feel like I have had, you know, many patients who've said things sort of like that. Like mm-hmm. what would you tell me if you wanted me to lose weight? And I'll say, mm-hmm. you know I wouldn't tell you anything differently, you know, yeah. or they'll say, when do you become a bitch? Because I need that dietitian. And I oh, yeah. you're, you're have to find someone else because that's never going to be me. And honestly, I don't think that would be beneficial, but you're welcome to find someone else and, and try that, you know? Um, you're more but, likely to find that person in a gym,
0: maybe <laughs> someone who will
1: yell at you. Well, Yeah, that's certainly true. Yeah. Mm. And then it's going to wonder why, after you weigh them and they've gained weight, you saw them eating later. But yeah, their shame based behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think yeah. that there is, a, huh, there is a whole world out there that's ready to shame people. And so when we do the opposite, sometimes that feels too little that doesn't feel like an intervention right right? it feels like well i didn't do anything but i believe that is an intervention if someone says something to you about what they believe are shameful eating behaviors and you don't say that's so gross or wow you are a failure if you can sit there with that person and say oh i'm sorry that that's happening i'd like to try to help you with that 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 is an intervention absolutely being that witness and and being able to say I think that you're a good person who's struggling not a bad person i mean that's a that's a gift and sometimes people aren't ready to hear that it's so different from their internal experience that it just makes you sound like a quack and Mm. every so often someone will say you know this is not what i came here for Mm. and that's that hurts and you kind of have to talk it out with a colleague and say do you think i did something wrong and you know hear them say no, I don't think you did anything wrong, but if you did, you could always call the person back and say, I regret X, Y, Z, but you know, sometimes we have to talk it out with someone, but I do think that what we as dietitians have to offer is, well, I don't know, I'm Jewish and I'll just say, um, it's part of tikkun olam. It's repairing the world. You know, we partner Mm -hmm. with God, you know, in repairing the world. And so that's what I think we do. I think it's a very noble, profession we go on purpose into someone's pain every day you know people who have an easy time changing their eating behaviors they never get to your door because they changed without a dietitian so most of the time we're working with people who are struggling and and that's I mean it's so honorable to wake up in the morning and and delve into someone else's hurting in an effort to help make their life better I think being a dietitian is just the best job for me. And I think we deserve to really feel proud of what we do.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Particularly when, you know, where we are working in areas where people are really struggling both psychologically and, and physically, mm-hmm there's an opportunity for great. I I believe that our profession um, is really at the forefront of of whole body healing personally.
1: Totally believe that too. The world is just sometimes not maybe ready to hear it from dietitians and dietitians Mm -hmm. are so busy doing the work that we don't always have the time to write the journal articles and things that it seems like the world sometimes demands of us. Um, That doesn't mean we're not doing an amazing job. And you, for some reason, this, conversation is reminding me to mention IFED which is the International Federation of Eating Disorders. Yes,
0: I was thinking exactly the same thing. I was thinking speaking of changing the world, Jessica Setnick, please tell us about IFED. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, it's an organization, the only organization that I know of exclusively for dietitians who have an interest area in the field of eating disorders or specialty area and if not a dietitian then whatever is the, you know, nutrition related credential in your country. And uh, it's only 25 U.S. dollars to join, which hopefully is reasonable enough that it would not keep anyone who wanted to join from joining. The website is IFEDD.com, International Federation of Eating Disorder Dietitians, so IFEDD.com. And you're welcome to join. If you're a student, you're also welcome to join. It's only 10 U.S. dollars to join. And we have a wonderful treatment finder. People uh, go to our website from all over the world looking for dietitians. And we also have um, a listserv that's very active where people post questions and get uh, support from other eating disorder dietitians. We are about 600 strong, and I have a goal of reaching 1,000 members by the end of 2017. So jump on board, and let's put our voices together to be heard.
0: Yeah, know that sounds that's amazing. Because um, I guess over the past five years or so where I've been a lot, um, more involved internationally, you know, uh, you know having conversations with people from all over the world, I think what it does is it it helps us to understand that none of us are alone we 're not alone in our practices we 're not alone in our own countries, but then worldwide people people are hurting, and people are are really suffering around uh, the relationships they have with food eating and their body and The more that we are able to um, form a collective Uh, support network of like-minded dietitians, I think it makes us stronger as a profession too.
1: It does. And we also have some research initiatives that are going on through IFED. We are a member of the Academy. No, sorry. I said Academy, but I meant Eating Disorder Coalition working toward legislation for insurance coverage for individuals with eating disorders. That's here in the U S we just, we really want to help, dietitians that are doing this work to feel like we have a community because we can be really isolated especially if we work in private practice or if we work in a hospital where we're the only eating disorder dietitian there's just some things about our job that that maybe other dietitians or other professionals just don't understand or comprehend and and we can be there for each other it's wonderful
0: yeah, definitely. And also the the other thing that I, that I notice about eating disorder dietitians is we're kind of putting out spot fires at the same time, because we're not only working with people who are actively struggling with an eating disorder. We, what I also notice, Jess, is that we're also quite outspoken, um, for example, in the prevention space as well, you know, so we are working on, um, on in the fields of, of body image and um, childhood feeding. And this is where our role isn't just isolated to actual eating disorder treatment. Um, we, we can have a very, very powerful voice because we, we see the consequences of diet culture. We, we see it firsthand. Yeah. So, you know, we've got a pretty important role that, that is not just about just what the, our, our immediate clinical um, practice it 's also about finding a voice beyond that to contribute towards um, healing a culture as well
1: no I think that 's all very true what you said, although I do sometimes get a little bit frustrated that it seems like oh, all the hard work that eating disorder dietitians are doing seems to go a little bit unnoticed by yeah. the your field but mm-hmm. I know you 're working to change that I know i 'm working to change that and I haven't quite figured out exactly the modality to do that, but I think working on our our research is going to be helpful and hopefully getting more published, but I think that none of that should take away from the fact that anyone who's working individually to help people improve their lives, there's value in that, even if none of it ever makes it into a journal. Definitely definitely i agree because
0: um bringing us kind of round circle we're contributing to then um if somebody decides to have a family themselves we're contributing to um transgenerational healing aren't we so you know know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so we never are working with one person we're working with one person who can perhaps then influence peers or can influence Mm -hmm. um, children or future children or um their own family, you know, so it, it it never is just one person. We are always,
1: you know, working beyond that, whether we see it or not. (laughs) Yes. And then there's all the people that we are able to help that we may never find out about. I know I had a time period a couple of weeks or months ago where I just got this idea to go on Facebook and just some of the patient names that I remembered from, you know, when I first worked at the children's hospital 15 or 18 years ago just to look them up on Facebook, I didn't contact them or communicate with them at all, but it was just so nice to see those smiling faces, and some of them have children now, and some I wasn't able to find, and you know I'll never know, but it, there's absolutely a a place there um that sometimes we don't even know about that we we played a role in someone's life.
0: Yeah, definitely yeah oh jess um uh, i think we could probably go for another approximately 42.5 hours so <laughs> it's been so awesome to chat with you and i just am so grateful for your insight and and wisdom around um you know particularly around um you know uh, transgenerational trauma and how we can understand that as dietitians, you've given us some amazing questions to ask. And I think that's, um, I mean, that's really valuable. I wrote them down because I am going to be using those for sure. Um, and it really just deepens our own understanding, I guess, of the human experience. So, um, I am really hoping that sometime in the next twelve months or so, we might actually get to meet in person, which would again, which would be really lovely. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, again, just thank you so, so much for for being here.
1: Sure. And let me just say that anyone listening who wants to be either a member of IFED or has questions wants to communicate. Um, please feel free to reach out to me. My email address is jessica at com, and I'd love to be a resource and be available in any way that I can.
0: Absolutely. Is there a website or any other any other place where people could look up, you know, maybe where you're talking or any other um, products you have and keep an eye on that book?
1: Yes. Understandingnutrition.com is the website where all of my workshops and courses and slides and everything is Um That would be the main place to go is understandingnutrition.com.
0: Yeah, perfect. And for anybody who has not heard Jessica speak before, it is a real treat. She is absolutely one of the best speakers I have ever heard. Mm -hmm. Very passionate um, and just really knows her stuff. So if you do have an opportunity to attend um, one of Jessica's courses or workshops or anything, then 100% travel take the time off get babysitters whatever you have to do <laughs> do yourself a
1: favor and so <laughs> it was yeah, really great we have the home study courses if that mm. all sounds too overwhelming then we have the eating disorders boot camp home study course which is actually available in mp3s Ah, um, oh, awesome and advanced eating disorders boot camp Yep.
0: oh wow that's awesome so you can even just listen in the car
1: instant gratification <laughs>
0: which we all love. (laughs) Jess, thank you so much again. It's been such
1: a pleasure. Oh, my pleasure. Bye, Fiona. Okay, bye-bye.
0: Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website, www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons licence. Have a great day, everyone.